Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight we enter Room 106, the den of discomfort into which all new planning information is deposited and extract the key things you need to know. In this edition, the Labour Party puts planning reform at the top of its to-do list for government. We ask how much its planning agenda differs from the Sunak government. Speaking of which, the Prime Minister told last week's Tory conference that he was scrapping the remaining northern leg of the HS2 high-speed rail link. We explore the implications for planning. Meanwhile, the introduction of the requirement for major building schemes to generate an increase in biodiversity has been pushed back to January. We'll examine the implications for developers and planning authorities. And on top of all that, we'll also round up some of the other big news stories of the past fortnight. So, ready to go in? I guess so. Well, back again in room 106. Good grief. It looks like someone's emptied a huge waste paper bin in here. Yes, look at all these envelopes and fag packets that have been scribbled on. Ah, they could be new planning policies floated at party conferences. They're going to take some deciphering. Who do we have to help? Well, fortunately, emerging from the gloom is our senior reporter, Samantha Eckford. Hello, Sam. Hello. And stepping out of the shadows, I think I can see our special correspondent, Joey Gardner. Hi, Richard. Good to have you with us. Sam, can I start with you and Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves' speech at the Labour Party conference this week? What did she say? She announced a number of planning-related measures designed to get Britain building again. She told the conference that the single biggest obstacle to building infrastructure to investment and to growth in this country was the Conservative Party and pledged to take on the antiquated planning system with a proposed once-in-a-generation set of reforms to accelerate the building of critical infrastructure. Okay, so what exactly is Labour proposing? So the party said that the proposed reforms would include a plan to update all national policy statements within the first six months of a Labour government and to fast-track the planning process for priority growth areas of the economy, such as battery factories, laboratories and 5G infrastructure. The party also pledged to appoint 300 planning officers to meet its aim of strengthening public sector capacity to expedite planning decisions and said that these roles would be funded by an increase on the stamp duty surcharge on non-UK residents. It also promised to introduce further measures designed to ensure that local communities which host critical national infrastructure get something back, including a proposal to provide them with cheaper energy bills. The party also said that it would set out clearer national guidance for developers on the engagement and consultation expected with local communities in its bid to tackle what it described as unnecessary, egregious and time-consuming litigation. On first impression, some of these ideas sound quite familiar and not totally dissimilar from things that the government is saying it's going to do. How much of this stuff is completely fresh? So it's, it's true that some of it has either been trailed by the party before and also may not be entirely dissimilar to the government's current approach. So, for example, national policy statements is something that the government is proposing to look at. It consulted on changes to the energy national policy statements early this year. And Labour has previously suggested that it does plan to look at these should it be elected. 
I guess the, the timeline of saying they're going to do it within six months is, I, I'm not sure if the government's put a timeline that's that precise on it. No. So the, so Labour are saying that this is an, an urgent priority for them and that they will look at them and review these statements within the first six months, should they be elected. It's quite interesting, though, because there's an awful lot of it sounds like stuff that the government says it's going to do anyway. I, I guess Labour's answer to that would be that they'll say that it's, it's stuff that, while the government might have said they're going to do it, they haven't yet done it. And I guess that some of the policies, like the 300 new planners, are new, although that's not an awful lot of planners once you spread it around the country. No, it's not. But as you say, I guess Labour are offering, uh, in that sense, something different to to what the government's proposing to try and tackle that skills gap. But we'll have to wait for more detail on some of the other proposals to see and understand how it's different entirely to the, the government's current plan. The other thing to mention is that one thing that was notably missing from her speech was any mention of Greenbelt, which has been a key point of contention between the two major political parties. So we'll have to wait and see for more on that. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Sam. I will leave you here sifting through the uh, the fag packets and, uh, and back of envelopes and looking for more revelations from the uh, party conferences. See you next time. So, Joey, turning to you, uh, you've been looking at one of the big announcements from last week's Tory conference, where we finally had confirmation that the government is going to scrap the remaining northern leg of HS2. So what exactly has Sunak said on HS2? So Rishi Sunak announced the cancellation of the whole of the second phase of the project, despite part of that already having received royal assent and that second phase effectively having been government policy for really the best part of a decade. Instead, he said the government plans to invest what it estimated was a £36 billion worth of savings into a variety of transport projects across the north and indeed elsewhere in the country, which actually includes both uh, road as well as rail schemes. The government has said that this means it can now deliver the Northern Powerhouse Rail Project in full, plus benefits to other areas in the country, transport infrastructure benefits, which had either previously seen projects cut or projects kind of with uncertain status awaiting approval. Sunak's rationale really was that the facts had changed on HS2 with passenger numbers not as high in the wake of the pandemic and construction costs having soared. The right things to do when the facts changed, he said, is to have the courage to change direction. So what does this mean for the HS2 project? What it means is that the current under construction phase from London to Birmingham will go ahead and Sunak importantly also confirmed that trains will run all the way to Euston, station in the centre of the capital, and not just to Old Oak Common, as had been speculated and was a kind of a key part of the decision that he made. But beyond Birmingham, high-speed trains will stop, or at least the new high-speed line will not be built further than Birmingham. Those high-speed trains will have to go back onto the conventional track and the new high-speed line will no longer run on as planned to crew Manchester Airport and Manchester Piccadilly, as had been previously set out. So as you said, this has been in the pipeline and official government policy for a long time, and people have, have kind of been working on that basis in lots of these places. So what does this mean for the places that HS2 was going to travel through and stop at? 
There are huge implications for lots of places. At the most basic level, all of the places that the line, that the uh, phase two line pass through will have those sites that the actual line was travelling on. Those sites will have been reserved or safeguarded, as it is called, and some of that land will have been bought up by the government or by, by HS2. That safeguarding is now going to be released in fairly short order and, and potentially land freed up and sites potentially unfrozen that might be able to come forward. So at a basic level, there's that impact that happens all the way across up and down the line. But perhaps more significantly, it's the places in which the stations were going to be located, Manchester Airport, which is on the edge of Manchester Council and Trafford, Birmingham and Crewe, which is in Cheshire East, local authority, have all got huge growth plans, really, at various stages of um, being articulated, but set out on the basis of HS2 and HS2 stations in their area. Crew had recently said it was going to start work on a new local plan, which was largely in part trying to, I guess, adapt to HS2 coming to its area. Manchester, likewise, is starting to review its local plan. But I think one of the most significant issues is people I've been speaking to are raising questions also about the Greater Manchester Strategic Plan, Places for Everyone, which is quite close to adoption. And across the 400-odd pages, HS2 is mentioned upwards of 80 times. So it's hard to see how that can proceed without some kind of amendment. That's very interesting. So are people saying that Greater Manchester is unusual to, in the extent to which its adopted plan is um, HS2-focused, or is it just that that's one that you've had comment on, but it's possible that this may be the case in several other places along the line? It is possible that there may be other local plans affected, but I suspect that Greater Manchester uh, as Places for Everyone plan is probably likely to be the most affected by this. I mean, given that there are only those limited number of stations, Greater Manchester obviously has two of those stations in Manchester Airport and Manchester Piccadilly. Also, remember that HS2 Phase 2 was only anticipated to be delivered, the final part of that, up to Greater Manchester towards the latter half of the 2030s. So lots of the areas that it has been scheduled to pass through, their local plans simply haven't been factoring in HS2 yet because their timeline doesn't go as far as this and they don't they haven't needed to factor it in as yet. As an emerging plan, Places for Everyone is probably one of the first to have really grappled with it and given everything that we know about how slow local plans have been to come forward in recent years. So far in my research, I I haven't encountered another local authority where the actual local plan has grappled with High Speed 2. So far, the ambitions have all been set out in things like strategic regeneration frameworks and other kind of supplementary local authority documents rather than the local plans themselves. Just coming back to what you said about the government saying that it's going to spend the money that it was due to spend on the northern leg of HS2 on some other schemes, including Northern Powerhouse Rail, 
and some road schemes. Just remind us what Northern Powerhouse Rail is. Northern Powerhouse Rail is essentially a collection of different rail projects uh, in the north, but essentially which the sum total of is a massive increase and upgrade in, broadly speaking, the east-west connections across the north from east across the Pennines to the northwest, Liverpool and Manchester. And the announcement from Rishi Sunak, for example, included a specifically $3 billion to connect the major cities of the north, Hull, Leeds, Sheffield and Manchester, including a new station for Bradford, which really wasn't thought to be on the card, and $12 billion to better connect Manchester and Liverpool, which the government was writing up as saying it was committed to full delivery of the Northern Powerhouse Rail scheme. Anything else that people really need to know about this? Well, I think the major issue that people are flagging to me is really the uncertainty. Labour has not set out its position in full on this, and you can understand why it's saying it doesn't know what situation it's going to inherit from the Conservatives. It doesn't know what the position of the land holdings or the exact position of the safeguarding of the sites will be if indeed it wins or, or comes into power at some, in some form after the next election. So we don't know whether the next government, whatever form it will take, it might bring HS2 back. This makes the decision for local authorities when they're um, reviewing their local plans, reviewing their local ambitions for homes, jobs, economic development, um, spatial development, incredibly difficult. And the feeling really is added to the policy uncertainty that we also have at the moment. This is just going to add to a kind of hiatus that we have. It's going to be much easier for local authorities, you know, and, and for developers as well, to just wait and see what happens politically in the next 12 months before really embarking on serious work because they really could be kind of wasting their time. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Joey. Obviously, uh, there's going to be a lot more fallout from this decision, so I will leave you here pouring over the, the details and look forward to seeing you in Room 106 again soon. Thanks very much, Richard. OK, turning to you now, John, and the news that the requirement on developers of big schemes to improved biodiversity is going to be delayed by a couple of months. What's happened? So the biodiversity net gain or BNG policy was introduced by the Environment Act in 2021. So that's two years ago now. And it was due to come to force for major applications in November. So next month. And for all minor applications from next April. However, at the end of last month, in a joint statement from the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, and the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, they said that developers of major schemes would now have to meet the requirement from January 2024 rather than November. It was always the case that for developers of small sites, the requirement wouldn't come into force until next April, and that's staying as is, and as is the um, introduction for nationally significant infrastructure projects, which is coming to force in 2025. The government said the necessary legislation required to bring the new rules into force would be laid in November. 
Okay, and what reason has the government given for the delay? Well, the government's statement doesn't actually spell out why, but it does suggest that ministers felt further preparation time was needed to make sure that everyone involved, so that would be Whitehall, councils and developers, are ready for it. The Biodiversity Minister, Trudy Harrison, at DEFRA, said the updated timetable would help smooth the transition ahead of biodiversity net gain going fully live in January 2024. The government promised in the statement to publish all guidance and regulations relating to BNG by the end of next month, and this includes a statutory biodiversity metric, a draft biodiversity gain plan template, and a what they called a package of BNG guidance, setting out further advice for landowners, developers and local planning authorities. Okay, so this is the kind of detail that people have been saying for months is is, is lacking. And um, for that reason, for a lot of people, the delay won't have come as an enormous surprise. But what's the reaction been from the planning and development sectors to the delay? Have practitioners highlighted any practical implications of it? Yes. As you say, it wasn't seen as a surprise, given the lack of, of detail and guidance from the government, which is critical to getting the initiative up and running. The general feeling is that this will create more uncertainty for councils and developers. We've had a lot of reaction. People say, like Matthew Pennycook, the shadow planning minister, saying this will result in yet more uncertainty and disruption for house builders and councils. That's the kind of typical reaction we've had. A comment from Dominic Woodfield, the head of ecology at Biofarm, which is an environmental consultancy. Uh, I felt really spelt out the impact on the ground. He said that the development, planning and environmental sectors have spent countless hours of work to ensure all actors were prepared for where net gain requirements were due to become mandatory this November. According to Woodfield, there's been a rush of job adverts from councils in recent weeks and months because they're attempting to get the staff needed to implement net gain. He said developers have also been employing in-house experts and a delay to its introduction will send uncertainty right through the core of business, councils and the environmental sector across England. Some other commentators noted, like we have, that there doesn't appear to be any explanation for the delay other than the necessary rules and guidance weren't going to be ready for the November launch. Environmental groups have expressed dismay, describing it as a setback for nature. Okay. And did anybody actually welcome the move? So most of the comments were pretty negative about it. But interestingly, the Royal Town Planning Institute welcomed it. Some of our listeners may know that the RTPI actually carried out a survey of members last month, which found that almost two thirds of public sector planners could not confirm that they would have resources in place to meet the November launch, which has now been pushed back. Victoria Hills, the Institute's chief executive, said their research had shown that the government was running out of time to prepare local authorities for BNG's implementation. And she said the RTPI welcomed the delay to ensure the guidance is prepared and hope that immediate clarity and support from the government will come quickly to ensure implementation of net gain is successful and to avoid adding to England's planning backlog. So, you know, fairly positive about the delay, but with a big condition that the government, um, that the necessary guidance comes forward. Interesting that the RTPI felt that actually in the circumstances it was the best thing to do. 
I guess that's a, a sort of pragmatic position from an organisation that was worried about its its members just being left in an impossible position without the um, the necessary detail. Thanks very much for that, John. And what about what else has been going on in the last couple of weeks? Well, there's been plenty of news. You've already spoken with Joey about the um, HS2 North cancellation and with Sam about uh, Rachel Reeves' keynote speech at the Labour conference this afternoon. Also at the Conservative Party conference last week, the Housing Minister Rachel McLean vowed to continue to intervene in local authorities that fail to bring forward a local plan. This comes after she issued such a direction to Spelthorne Council in Surrey. Sticking with the Housing Minister, she has written to the 10 authorities that were threatened with the loss of their planning powers earlier this year as a result of their slow decision-making to confirm that they will not face punishment because of improved performance in the most recent quarter of government data. But she warned them that she would continue to closely monitor their performance. Research by Planning Last Week showed that of these 10 authorities, six remain below the government threshold for speed of decision-making, according to the latest Housing Department data but nevertheless, it looks like they'll now escape any punishment. OK, so this continues a long history of the government not really using its ability to put councils who underperform into special measures. It's only been done on a handful of occasions over all the many years that it's been uh, available. Is that right? That's right. It is a handful. Uttlesford Council was designated last year, but that was the first time in, I think, five years that a council had been designated. OK, and any sort of lighter stories? Yes, there's been quite a few unusual stories in the past fortnight, but one that really stands out, which we featured in our daily newspaper roundup, is an article in The Mirror on a planning dispute that led to a stone gargoyle representation of a council leader being erected on the roof of a house in Wiltshire by a disgruntled builder. So the builder had his planning application to convert a takeaway into a three-storey house rejected by Wiltshire Council. But he'd already began work at the site unlawfully. So the the local authority issued an enforcement notice against the builder, which made him quite cross and prompted him to create this effigy of the council leader, who has apparently taken it in good humour. But that's one quite unusual way to respond to enforcement action. So you imagine conservationists in 200 years' time puzzling over who this this figure (laughs) was. Yes, Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that, John. And of course, listeners can read more on all of these stories at planningresource.co.uk. Well, I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great. That's another couple of weeks summarised. Yes. We'll be back with our bonus edition in a week's time, exploring in more detail what we learned from the party conference season. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producer Inga Marsden from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.